Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're back today with somebody who I've been excited all week to get on, uh, Vijay Prashad. How are you doing, Vijay? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so yeah. Vijay is an incredibly inspirational analyst of all kind of political events. He's an activist in a lot of ways. Um, you can check him out on the, the tricontinental.org, but he's just written a book with Noam Chomsky um, called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today, a little bit of stuff like that. So um, thanks for being here. Um, so I want to start out by saying, you know, I'm in Germany right now, and uh, I'm right near this war that's happening. And we're, we're going to suffer because of it, I think. Um, and Western media is only reporting on the war in Ukraine and Russia without any historical context. Uh, can you explain to the people at home maybe what, what forces such as NATO and the U.S. have been playing uh, historically in this area? And are we experiencing the decline of Western dominance? It's hard to say that there's a decline, but if you don't mind, and this is um, right in line with your question, let's bring the context back in, um, because otherwise, how do you understand anything? And for context, one has to actually go back um, over a decade. Now, you see, when the major world financial crisis took place, you remember in, in you know, uh, the, in Wall Street, um, the banks were in a flutter, um, you know, Bear Stearns was in a flutter, AIG, the big, you know, investment company went bankrupt and so on. Um, the United States government came in and pumped a lot of money into the financial markets. Well, the group of 20 countries uh, at the time with France and others really, you know, in the lead, approached countries like India and China and said, listen, you are carrying current account surpluses. Would you put some capital into the international banking system? And if you do that and quote-unquote save capitalism, you'll get greater seats at the IMF board and we'll disband the G7 and make the G20 essentially into the executive of world affairs. Um, so China and India pump money into the international banking system and the United States government also opened the floodgates from the Federal Reserve and to some extent they stabilized capitalism. Now, in Beijing, serious discussion broke out about what the IMF called the satanic embrace between the United States and China. China was producing uh, goods for the international market was lending U.S. consumers money because U.S. real wages had been stagnant for most people. And then those wages, uh, because they were not capable of buying these Chinese goods, people took the credit that the Chinese were lending to buy the goods from China. That's what the IMF called a satanic embrace. Now, if there was such fragility in the United States economy, the U.S. economy, in Beijing, there was a serious discussion. We have to do something different. You know, we can't rely anymore on the United States. At this point, the Chinese uh, developed several projects. One was a kind of social transfer payment scheme, which ended up with the ending or the, the, the uh, emancipation for most people in China from absolute poverty. That was the social transfer payment scheme. But secondly, the Chinese started to experiment with new markets in Central Asia, uh, new markets in uh, in Southeast Asia and, and so on. 
And this eventually, after Xi Jinping becomes the head of the government in 2013, is called One Belt, One Road, and then Belt and Road. Now, interestingly, the Chinese began to take the Belt and Road beyond Central Asia through Iran, through Turkey, into Europe. 17 European countries joined the Belt and Road Initiative in this last decade. That's a lot of people, you know, in, in Europe. Um, finding that the Chinese were more in, willing to invest capital in European projects than the United States. So from uh, Europe, there was a view that an integration with China was taking place. That's on the one flank. Secondly, because as a consequence of the catastrophic U.S. wars, war against Iraq, um, the sanctions war against Iran, war against Libya and so on, many of the sources of European energy began to go offline. And um, Europe began to uh, essentially depend more and more on Russian energy exports. Hence, Nord Stream 2 becomes so important. You know, there's also energy being imported from Norway into Europe through the Euro pipelines and so on. But the reliance on Russia begins to increase. So what you begin to see as a consequence of the financial crisis and then of these catastrophic wars is a kind of inevitable integration of Europe and Asia. This is the great historical integration of the Eurasian landmass that has not taken place, you know, let's say for millennia. The last time probably was when the Mongols rode into <laughs> Eastern Europe, but that was a whole other story. This is a historical process of integration. What it meant was that Europe was getting, in a sense, tied into a new set of arrangements with Asia and no longer so closely allied with the United States or North America. And it's at this point that the United States enters actually during the Obama administration, but then Trump uh, both come into the story here saying, look, Europe, you've got to make a decision. Are you an Atlantic power or are you an Asian power? Uh, are you getting sucked into uh, authoritarianism of Asia? That's the way they framed it. Um, and so the aggression against Russia and China was really about who gets to dominate Europe. And Europe is such a strange continent, Chris, because at no point did Europe say, well, we want to have our own independent foreign policy, make our own decisions. You know, they were like, we don't want to be caught under the hammer of uh, the Chinese and the Russians. We're scared of them. But, you know, we are OK with being under the hammer of the United States. But our independence is not on the table. The only person actually in recent period who has tried to articulate some independence, interestingly, and this may have to do with the heritage of Gaulism in France, is Emmanuel Macron. From all of Macron's great uh, failures, and there are many, he nonetheless was interested. He wrote a book about this in 2016 in, you know, integrating with Russia, with having better relations with China and so on. There is a kind of historical integration taking place. And the United States, as a principal actor here, has tried to either prevent this integration, to delay it or to stop it um, with force. And Ukraine became a battleground for this. So for people who look at the conflict in Ukraine as, say, a land grab by the Russians and so on, you're actually missing a much greater story. It's You could still look at it in the narrow way and say, look, you know, the, the question of Ukraine and before that Georgia has a lot to do with the kind of what I would say is the unfinished 
collapse of the USSR. You know, that's a process that didn't actually take place in 91. Uh, everything was supposedly so easy in 91, right? USSR collapses. Now Ukraine is independent. Georgia is independent. You know, Armenia, Azerbaijan independent. In fact, of course, we know that in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, these conflicts, you know, that are an inheritance of the collapse of the USSR continues. So you could see other storylines as well. But the big picture here is about the historical integration of Eurasia and the United States attempt to block it. Hmm. And you think that to some degree we lose uh, the fact that uh, America, who has this hegemony that stretches so far close to the borders of China and Russia, that we probably uh, don't have any business there. Um, And it should be none of our business. But but you're saying that Europe is definitely just a pawn between whoever happens to be the biggest power. Well, it's up to Europe to define its own identity. And I must say, you know, for those observers of looking at Europe from afar, it's hard to see what Europe's identity is. You know, um, look, Europe in the last, I don't know, at least decade has been convulsed, brought into a convulsion by the United Kingdom around the whole Brexit debate. You know, um, that called into question the identity of Europe. You know, what is Europe? Is Europe the European Union? Is Europe NATO? Look, NATO is a Trojan horse of U.S. power in Europe. NATO is not a European institution, you know, even though it has uh, secretary generals who are European, Jens Stoltenberg and others. It's an institution that's dominated and controlled by the United States. That should be without question. It's kind of silly to have heads of government of Europe talking about NATO as their institution. You know, that, that's a, it's a silly way to operate. It's not a European institution. In fact, Europe doesn't have a combined military force. And that's a point of some great, um, you know, distress for some European countries that they don't actually have their own uh, regional, you know, let's say military defense strategy. They've been entirely dependent on the United States since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then, of course, earlier, since the formation of NATO in um, the 1940s, you know, the 1949 creation of NATO is the creation of Western Europe, at least as a, as a security creature of the United States. You know, there are U.S. bases quite routinely in Germany at Mannheim, Ramstein base and so on. Nobody questions the existence of a U.S. base on sovereign German soil. It's taken for granted. You know, it's a weird thing to imagine <laughs> that you have a foreign base in your country. You know, why don't you have your own military bases? Why do you have a Foreign government have a military base where they have extraterritorial power and so on. So in that sense, Europe hasn't actually defined its own position. So I don't feel the ability, Chris, to talk about like Europe's identity in the world because, well, I'm interested to hear from the Europeans. And the other day I heard the European Union's leading diplomat talk about Europe as a garden and the rest of the world as a jungle. Well, if that's Europe's self-image, you know, that's terrifying that Europe continues to persist with a false racist image. I mean, in a way, what I would say to Europeans is come to terms with a very simple prospect. The simple prospect is you are part of the Eurasian landmass. You are not separate from it and you're not better than the rest of it. You have to engage with it. It's a curiosity that, say, the governments of Europe say Russia is authoritarian 
maybe it is i don't know but they say russia is authoritarian and therefore we won't deal with russia but meanwhile they deal with saudi arabia which is self described as an authoritarian state you know saudi arabia describes itself as a monarchy which if you look up in the encyclopedia under authoritarianism monarchies are inherently authoritarian but yet europe has no problem talking to the saudis now you can have a debate about whether russia is authoritarian or not you can have that debate but if you're talking to the saudis why don't you talk to the russians strikes me as a kind of juvenile attitude by diplomats that they would make these kind of statements about a part of their own continent you know the idea of europe separating from asia is an idea in fact europe and asia are part of one continent you know th- there is a kind of natural flow there is no real break it's not an island uh, so, that lives by itself so they're going to have to eventually they're going to have to come to reality break away from uh, the us which doesn't even make its own stuff and is only ruling by uh, military power at this point and realize that life will be easier if they go with the flow when it comes to the trade with china the railroads that they're bringing uh, building from there to here um is do you think life would be better if we did that I mean you know there is this kind of anxiety about the political systems in Russia or in China let's take them because that is actually in the at the heart of why Europe says well we don't want to integrate with Russia or China they are authoritarian let's come to that for a minute um when the soviet union collapsed in 1991 it was the west particularly the united states that went to russia and you know under the aegis of their ally boris yeltsin they designed the system that we have now in russia they designed the system you know in the late 1990s uh, by all indications the communist party won a democratic election in russia it was stolen from the communists and delivered back to boris yeltsin that was all under the watch directly of the clinton administration so people complain about the political system in russia the oligarchs and so on this is the system you created after the collapse of the soviet union so you need to take some responsibility for it i am not a great defender of the russian system i i had a great sense of of, of you know expectation with the soviet union with the russian revolution and so on but i'm not a great defender of the russian system it's a system you know which has oligarchs and all of these people but that's a system the west created you know put in place by their ally boris yeltsin as soon as mr putin tried to break from the west he came to the munich security conference in 2007 as soon as he came to break from the west suddenly he became you know the enemy before 2007 mr putin was considered a great ally of the west thomas friedman writes in a column where rooting for putin he writes you know um, this is before 2007 tony blair says i looked into his eyes and i see an honest man george w bush says putin is my buddy my ally i mean suddenly when putin said i don't want to walk alongside the united states at its beck and call i don't want to be a subordinate ally of the us suddenly he becomes authoritarian that's interesting and let me come back to the before i come to china come back to the question of eurasian integration you see the european union has produced a report where it talks about the inevitability of eurasian integration it says that this integration is going to happen but europe should be in charge of what's happening not asia not china and so they don't actually have a problem with the integration what they have a problem with is that china 
particularly is an independent country which is not taking their orders that's really the problem so let's come to china now is china authoritarian well it has a different structure certainly than us democracy there are 95 96 million members of the um, communist party of china which is just having its 20th congress and so on you know they have a different system is it democratic well for sure it's not a caricature of authoritarian and also it's not quote unquote democratic like the united states where the electoral college essentially you know defines who wins an election where money has has corrupted politics and so on it's not like the us system is perfection you know the chinese are struggling to produce their own form of internal democratic structures um, so you can go around saying you know they are authoritarian they are authoritarian this is ridiculous you know angela merkel was the chancellor of germany longer than evo morales was the president of bolivia and yet when they cooed evo morales in the presidency they said he has been there so long nobody has a problem when ms merkel was there for over 14 15 years i don't remember exactly how many years that's not a problem the problem is when an indigenous leader is the head of government in bolivia so if you look at all this strikes me there's a race angle to this you know that we don't want to take orders from the chinese we don't want to take orders from the russians you know because they are slavs or whatever but russia is slightly different case we don't want to take orders from the chinese that strikes me as fundamental and we don't even want to make the attempt to understand what the actual political situation is in china we're going to say oh look in china they jail all the dissidents um and who's sitting in belmarsh prison uh, belmarsh prison is not in beijing belmarsh prison is in london and who's sitting there but julian assange you know you're jailing your dissidents you jail so many of them edward snowden not willing to come back to the united states scared of being jailed there are whistleblowers in the us who keep going to jail we keep reading about this but that is not put together in a report and where people are then saying well it's a authoritarian society which is basically jailing dissidents you see so i mean i know there are levels of 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 repression um the us is not a highly repressive society in terms of like all critics of the government are in prison of course not but nor is china inside the communist party there are enormous debates between the liberals and the hardcore marxists and others you know most of the institutions in china are actually run by liberals including the central bank and so on they are liberals many of them pro american there are different views in china it's not a mono chromatic society where what xi jinping says everybody agrees if that were a case why are people so interested in who's going to be the next premier in china you know xi jinping is going to be um, the head of the party and so on but who will be the prime minister you know why is the interest if it's all she's decreed then just see what she is saying don't read anything else and there's not going to be this great difference between merkel and 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 xi and all these other people but uh you know at the end of the day uh china at least is openly authoritarian while the us has this illusion of choice an illusion of democracy where people think they're free but the, the systems are so similar because power invariably is corrupted at all levels in most 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 governments but the fact that they're so you know one second I, just chris just to elaborate on that you see i actually don't like the word authoritarian to describe anything because it's in fact i think it's it's one of those terms which has become emptied of content you know 
what does it mean to say a country is authoritarian? Um, you know, what does one mean? Are there levels of authoritarianism and so on? You see, in a country like China, there is a lot of grassroots democratic structure. There are neighborhood committees, all kinds of organizations. That's why when the pandemic broke out, um, you know, neighborhood committees took care of people in the neighborhood. Uh, everybody was tested by local um, medical structures and so on. You know, they have a lot of organization in that society. Far more than I, I was in the United States, I asked people, did anybody from the state or from some civil society group ring your doorbell during the pandemic to ask you how you were? No, nobody did. Um, in, in that sense, it's a completely chaotic society because there's not even like structures in your neighborhood, um, you know, where, where people came to see some elderly people. Are you OK? Do you need anything? And so on. There, there are no structures. There is only the state. Um, in that sense, if, if you were strict about the terminology, the United States is authoritarian. You know, there's only the state. This people wait for the state to deliver aid. Um, but in countries like Cuba and China and so on, there's an enormous number of grassroots organizations in Cuba, the committees to defend the revolution. You know, most Cubans belong to some structure, Federation of Cuban Women, etc. And those structures participate in society. They enrich society. In that sense, they are not authoritarian societies because people don't wait around for the state to act. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If I you do, and I, it like that. I do not want to throw shade on, on socialist China because I love what they do as far as, as executing uh, uh, aristocrats and stuff like that, where they go the opposite direction with the stuff. I find that the United States is completely void of all values at this point. And not only do they wait for the state to help them, they also wait for uh, corporations to come in. When Trump made this big speech and said, we have this pandemic going, here's the CEOs of Walmart. How, how the does that help us? I mean, that was really interesting. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not just that the CEOs of Walmart and so on at all levels, right? I mean, testing was privatized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, all the COVID measures seem to have been privatized, you know, but I don't know that much about all the details. I just know there was a lot of privatization going on at, uh, in the healthcare system, even more, you know, yeah. why doesn't the state just come in and organize testing, you know, for free? Instead, the state pays private companies to provide free testing. That stunned me, you know, yeah. what is that about? Anyway, yes. That will take us to a whole other discussion (laughs) of the dysfunctionality of of these states uh, in the modern world. Well, we're going to have to invite you back and just do it, do it again. So (laughs) I'll get to the next question so that, because we're already one question in and we're already halfway done. Um, So let's see if I got a good one for you. Okay. So American media just touted that the cutoff of U.S. semiconductor exports, as if we make a lot of uh, semiconductors in the first place. Um, do do we? Does America even make any significant amount of chips? And what's this? What's the real story here? It's very interesting. You know, um, it's a complicated business. So the chips are made in many different countries, including in the um, part of China called Taiwan. I mean, this is a, how does one even talk about Taiwan these days? You know, um, well, Taiwan, you know, a lot of chips made in Taiwan, some made in the United States, Germany and other places. There's a kind of chip war that the United States government has entered into, which I think is going to hurt everybody, frankly. Um, you know, here's an irony. 
in the 1990s the us government was a champion of globalizing um world economy you know building global um economic structures commodity chains decentralizing production and so on and the chinese eventually go along with it and join the world trade organization open up large areas of china for business like shenzhen and so on today the opposite is happening the chinese want to have a globalized open economy and the us is creating barriers you see earlier the barriers were for economic development the countries placed barriers like subsidy and tariff barriers so that they could develop their own economies now the barriers are entirely political they are not about economics you know where the us says we're going to stop china selling uh, phones to other parts of the world let's spend a minute on this what are these political things the us is doing because underneath the politics are also economics uh, what why is the united states so angry with huawei for instance well interesting when globalization took off in the 90s chinese were very clever much more clever than the indians and the other indonesians and and others what the chinese said was you're a german company you're welcome to come to um you know to hubei province wuhan where the pandemic was said to have emanated lots of german companies in that province you're welcome to come to hubei um you can set up your uh, your you know uh, whatever it is your sort of green technology firm which produces solar panels come and build it here we have highly educated workers they are well fed um you know they they understand motivated people and so on uh, but you have to teach us what you're doing you have to transfer science and you have to transfer technology otherwise you can't come here these companies hungry to get well fed highly educated chinese workers said fine here's the pap- this is what we're doing this is the science behind our solar panel and this is the tech take a look but keep producing well went great for these companies 5 years 8 years and so on and then down the road a chinese company opens called solar panels china incorporated <laughs> and within like 5 8 years the chinese company is making better solar panels and cheaper and china now is the world's largest producer of green technology same in robotics same in telecommunications same in high speed rail the chinese are up there if not as good as western companies maybe better and it's a consequence of this chris that uh, obama started the trade war which then trump intensifies and you know trump starts to intensifies the trade war tim cook of apple computers comes to see trump now you'd think that all these liberals from silicon valley tim cook and others Uh, would come to trump and say stop the trade war because all our computers all our machinery is produced in china this is going to hurt us no tim cook understood that this war was good for apple how they were willing to take a short term hit um, that you know they, they would find it difficult uh, to get you know maybe they would even lose the ability to produce goods in china they'd have to move to malaysia or somewhere uh, they take a short term hit but they wanted to fatally damage chinese telecommunication companies like huawei because they can't tolerate the competition you see what what has happened is china now is head on head competing with the united states in all these important fields which are really motors for the us economy telecommunications high speed rail robotics green technology everything i listed earlier china is competing head on head you know huawei you go to africa go to say zambia go try to buy a phone in the market nobody buys apple phones they're too expensive they all buy chinese phones or 
maybe south korean phones you know you can buy samsung much cheaper than you can buy apple but certainly chinese infinitely cheaper that's what people buy they are not buying apple so you see part of the trade war against china is actually the existential crisis faced by us capital these sectors in particular they want to use us power diplomatic military power to weaken these companies in china that's what they are interested in doing and so now it's gone crazy that the united states is saying we're going to essentially destroy the world chip eco- producing economy in order for us to get an advantage and therefore biden who can't get enough money to rebuild infrastructure in the united states has said the united states government is going to underwrite the construction of chip manufacturing in the us there are some chip manufacturing plants already in the south west of the united states in arizona and new mexico and so on mm-hmm. uh, but they say we're going to produce more by the way before this trade war intensified it was in fact huawei and others that were coming into the upper midwestern states in the us to invest in chip manufacturing companies uh, you know it was not us firms that were going to do that so this trade war which is about the existential strength of companies like microsoft apple that's what the us government has gone to war on behalf of these companies this trade war is going to destroy the world economy so so what happened was america said you want to hey world do you want to play a game of monopoly i got the board here let's play i'll teach you how to play they teach china how to play uh, china becomes way better at it um starts winning and then america just takes the board and shoves it off the table and goes you know what fuck you guys <laughs> i mean that's pretty much exactly what uh what happened if i'm quite honest with you i mean you know i spent some time i mean you if you go and if one of your listeners viewers wants to go and look at the chips act passed by the us congress in july of 2022 it's interesting because it's a sign of desperation you know um it, it's this desperation that somehow the us government which has not been in this business ever um is going to come in and is going to somehow incubate semiconductor chip manufacturing in the us let me ask you a question who's going to work in these factories you know who is going to work there well they say we'll robotize the factory okay who's going to create and manage the robots you know you have a serious skills shortage in the united states you've been importing um you know uh, people from all over the world in high skilled areas of work from which countries from eastern europe from russia from china and so on they are not going to come any longer so where are these skills going to come from you know if you take a farming family 20 generations they are farming corn let's say and then you take the land away from them and build a high rise building and then three or four generations later you say hey listen we we are all hungry let's go back and build and grow corn again nobody remembers how to grow the corn you know <laughs> people are used to living in the building eating at mcdonalds nobody none of the generations that come later remember how to grow the corn you don't have enough people here at the present moment in the united states to really execute the chips act un- unless you import more people or get migration opening ask the republicans to open the doors to migration well that's another contradiction so th- this is essentially what uh, jello biafra was trying to warn us about when he said we adopted the the mentality give me convenience or give me death to where now uh, these modern conveniences have made us soft useless fat 
uh, Americans, you know, this is why I left that place. <laughs> I, I mean, I won't agree with you because that would be offensive for me to say that. But I will say that one of my favorite films from the United States is Wally, um, where people just sit in lilos and slurp drinks uh, and sort of uh, spread around the galaxy. Uh, and so on. So, yeah, but yeah. you can say that I pos- could not possibly. Yeah, yeah. Take I'll say it. I'll say it for you. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so I'll ask you one last question, then I'm going to let you go because you're a busy, busy guy. Um, so obviously Western governments, especially America, infamous for, you know, staging coups and, and undermining people's democracies. We're very good at it. Um, what are, in your opinion, what were some of the most egregious or maybe some of the unknown examples of the U.S. meddling in other countries' affairs? That, the ones that, uh, you, I know you posted something about, uh, Sankara the other day. Uh, I found that to be very interesting. But let's take a more disturbing story, which, okay. <laughs> you know, some people may say, what, what is he talking about? Um, you know that after World War II, um, obviously the United States occupied Japan and was a party to the writing of the Japanese constitution and so on. And at the same time, uh, because in the constitution, there's an article that says Japan no longer will have a real military and cannot deploy its military overseas. Security for Japan was left now in the hands of the United States. You know, after having dropped two atomic bombs and firebombing Tokyo, the U.S. is now going to take care of you. Okay. As a consequence of that, large tracts of land on the Japanese mainland and in Okinawa Island were basically handed over to the United States. So the United States built a large base in Okinawa. Even now there's a, there's a project to expand the base and friends are trying to block that because the, the expansion of this base is going to render extinct the dudong, which is, you know, like a manatee. Uh, which lives in this bay in Okinawa. Anyway, it, it, it is a terrible situation in Okinawa because, you know, a, a very large part of the island is taken up by the U.S. base. So there was a groundswell of opinion in Japan to have the U.S. bases not expanded and perhaps some of them shut down. In 2009, uh, Hatoyama won an election uh, coming from a kind of, um, you know, center-left political opinion. He was really a centrist. Not even much of a leftist, but Hatoyama wins the election with a mandate uh, to no longer allow U.S. bases to expand and perhaps to roll them back. Well, very interesting. There was a coup against Hatoyama and he was removed from government. Now, why this is interesting is nobody knows about this and it's not even called a coup uh, because his party decided to remove him uh, from the position he was in. Okay, let's look at the evidence. What happened? The U.S. and Japan have a very uncomfortable but tight relationship with each other. Very uncomfortable but tight relationship. United States actually prefers it when Japan is ruled by the right wing, including these nationalistic, um, fascistic right wing like Shinzo Abe, who was killed this year in a very odd uh, murder. But the right wing is actually preferable because the right wing... You know, they don't mind U.S. bases. They want to build up the Japanese military. They're aggressively anti-China and so on. Um, But when Hatoyama came to power, he wanted a kind of conciliatory policy with his neighbors and he wanted to roll back on the bases. But because of this very tight relationship between Japan and the United States, um, when President Obama was to come to, when he came to Tokyo, he kind of came to Tokyo and then refused to come to the official banquet. 
snubbing Hatoyama in a sense and making him look really bad in, in Japan. And through a series of interesting maneuvers, a visit of Hillary Clinton, conversations with Japanese parliamentarians and so on, they had, they created the conditions for Hatoyama to lose support in parliament and then be removed as prime minister. Now, once he was removed as prime minister, the entire agenda to roll back U.S. bases in Japan, perhaps to stop construction or to, in fact, you know, remove some of the bases, that entire agenda, political agenda has been defeated and it's no more in evidence. So, you know, what is this but interference in a country's democratic decision making? The Japanese people elected somebody to come in and roll back on a, the militarization policy. The U.S. government intervenes to get rid of that person. It's very interesting. Vladimir Zelensky similarly elected uh, with a peace mandate to negotiate with the Russians and so on. But that was simply not permitted by Washington, D.C. That peace agenda that Zelensky was elected upon could not be um, put into place. The United States consistently undermined that. The, the most, you know, unspoken part of this undermining was Trump's unilateral withdrawal from the Intermediate um, Nuclear Missile Treaty. The um, treaty that, you know, is, is the, one of the centerpieces of the arms control treaty. The U.S. walked away from that treaty. Well, having walked away, Russians walked away and said that, you know, we need a new security discussion. U.S. said, we're not talking security with you. And then the Russians invade Ukraine. I mean, you know, uh, these are all unspoken parts of contemporary history. You know, you ask anybody about what happened in Japan in 2009, even in Japan. And this is not understood in this way. What's understood is that Hatoyama comes to power, he becomes unpopular, and they withdraw support. But how this happened in um, in 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 Brazil? This is precisely what was done to Dilma Rousseff in 2016. She was removed in essentially what you might call legislation fair. You know, a kind of warfare conducted through the legislature. And I just uh, ask you about Kirchner uh, too. Is this a similar event with Kirchner? Well, you know, it's a little more complicated in Argentina because in Argentina, the coalition that's governing is a little fractious and doesn't have full agreement on the agenda to be pursued. It was in a way a, a coalition of very disparate elements. Um, so Kirshner uh, was part of a kind of left Peronism, very much uninterested in going back to the IMF, open to the idea of borrowing money from the People's Bank of China and so on. Alberto Fernandez is to her right, and he wanted very much to, quote-unquote, return to international capital markets, going back to the IMF. So in Argentina, it was, to some extent, um, Chris, an own goal. Uh, now, it is also true that the finance minister of Argentina, Martin Guzman, who went and made the deal with the IMF, then quit his job in the government and went to work for a U.S. funded agency. So, um, I, I, you know, I can't tell you more than what is factually known. Right. You can draw your own conclusions. Yeah. And I, I will, and I will. So, all right. Well, we got to end it. Uh, you're a busy guy. You're going to get up to your next meeting. Um, we're going to have you back and I want to thank you for coming on. VJ Prashad. It's a pleasure, Chris. We'll talk again for sure. All right. Bye everybody.